Conclusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Diffusion, the international science show. If you like your science fresh, interesting, uncluttered, unprejudiced and relevant, join us for the next half hour and enjoy the sensation of your mind expanding as we pour it into your brain. My name's Vicky Saunders and first up we have the news with Ian Wolfe. Solar powered, solar power. A partly solar-powered solar power panel factory will be built in Japan. Japanese electronics manufacturer Sharp are investing in the local power utility Kansai Electronic to install solar panels on the roof of the solar cell factory buildings to generate 8 megawatts. The company will build a 10 megawatt solar power station next door to the factory. Together this will feed 5% of the factory's power needs. The thin-film photovoltaic solar cell factory is being built in Sakai City near Osaka in western Japan and will be capable of producing 480 megawatts worth of cells per year by March 2010 when it's due to start production. Thin-film panels use 1% of the silicon required to make conventional crystalline-type panels and so they're easier on the environment by 100 times from a production standpoint and should cost half the price of traditional solar cells. They're best suited for for use in hot countries where there's plenty of sun. Sharp have also signed a deal to build a solar power plant for Enel in Italy, and Google have just hired Sharp to build the 1.6 megawatt solar power installation hosted on the company's roof in Mountain View, California. Toshiba has invented reprintable paper. The printer can clean used paper of ink so that the paper can be reused to print the next sheet. The reusable paper is coated with heat-activated pigments that turn black at 180 degrees Celsius plus. When the pigments are heated from 130 degrees to 170 degrees, the pigments revert back to white, which essentially erases the sheet's contents. The printer can clean the same piece of paper of ink 500 times. On the one hand, the paper is expensive at around $10 per sheet, and the paper needs to be looked after. Damage to the paper will result in distorted images. On the other hand, there's never any need to replace the ink and a long time before you need to buy any new paper. There are no consumables to be constantly replaced. The next ream of paper with special ink you buy may be the last one you'll ever need to buy. It's a whole new way of looking at printing. Toshiba explained that the printer will come into its own where there's a large volume and the printed copies are only required for a very short period. Memos, work instructions, lists, shipping instructions, inventory slips, and so on. Needless to say, the reprintable paper is really made of plastic. Polyethylene, terephthalate, aka PET. The same material used for fizzy drink bottles. It's totally recyclable. Welcome to the new science of neurocinematics. 
Researchers from the Computational Neuroimaging Laboratory at New York University recently studied viewers' brains while they watched a film. They scanned the brains of 45 participants while they watched scenes from movies and TV shows. They found that all the scenes activated numerous and diffuse regions of the cerebral cortex, visual areas on the occitable lobes, auditory and language centres in the temporal lobes, and so on. They subjected the brain scan data to a newly developed statistical method called intersubject correlation, ISC, analysis, which is designed to measure the similarities in the responses of all the participants. That is, how much of the same pattern of brain activity was generated by the movie in the audience's separate brains. First 30 minutes of Sergio Leone's classic spaghetti western, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, produced an ISC score of 45%, while Larry David's Curb Your Enthusiasm scored 18%. The study also provides some evidence that Alfred Hitchcock really is the master of suspense. His 1961 film, Bang, You're Dead, gave a score of 65%. The fact that Hitchcock was able to orchestrate the responses of so many different brain regions turning them on and off at the same time across all viewers, may provide neuroscientific evidence for his notoriously famous ability to master and manipulate viewers' minds. Hitchcock often liked to tell interviewers that for him, creation is based on an exact science of audience reactions. The researchers suggest that the intersubject analyses they performed give an indication of the effectiveness of a given cinematographic technique engaging the viewer, and suggest that their findings can therefore inform filmmakers. They also hope that the study will, near, will initiate the new interdisciplinary field of neurocinematics, coming to political propagandists and ruthless marketers near you. This is mass madness, you maniacs! In God's name, you people are the real thing! We are the illusion! So turn off your television sets, turn them off now, turn them off right now, turn them off and leave them off, turn them off right in the middle of the sentence I'm speaking to you now, turn them off! That was Ian Wolfe with the news. You're listening to Diffusion, the international science show. Making the world go round, the humble engine emerged in ancient times and continues to influence human life. In the first of our series on the history of engines, Lachlan Watmore looks at the engines of the ancient world. I've always loved engines, even though I haven't always understood them. I'd like to take a bit of time to look at engines down through the ages, and I'm going to start with the ancient world. Now, I'd like at this point to make a distinction between an engine and a machine. For our purposes, an engine is the source of power for a machine, which is a device that enables the engine to perform work. So, the expensively fuelled cylinders under your bonnet transmit energy to the wheels of your beast, and your beast carries on the work of your expensively fuelled cylinders. Well, duh, but here's the thing. If you want to look at the history of engines, the best way is to keep the distinction between engines and machines firmly in mind, because the interaction between the two over the centuries has been pretty complex. During the Renaissance, classical scholars defined six simple machines, which can be defined as the basic building blocks of all complicated machines. They were the lever, the wheel and its axle, the pulley, the inclined plane, the wedge, 
and the screw. These were regarded as the simplest mechanical devices to apply force to do work. All of them use only one applied force to do work on one load force. Ignoring wastage of energy, the amount of grunt you put in equals the amount of work you get out. These simple machines can then be combined to make more complex ones, such as a hand-cranked egg beater, which uses a lever and a wheel, or a bicycle, which uses wheels, levers and pulleys. The engines of the ancient world were thus almost entirely naturally occurring, and went by names like horse, mule, donkey, ox, litter-bearing slave, and fast-flowing stream and windy day. Wind and water were free and didn't have to be fed, although they were a bit unpredictable. The earliest known water wheels are Mediterranean in origin and date to around the 3rd century BC. They also arose separately in ancient China. Most water wheels were vertically mounted, or in other words, the axle was parallel to the ground. Other water wheels were horizontally mounted, with the axle continuous with the spindle of a mill or other machinery. However, most were vertically mounted. Our engine, the flow of water, can be introduced to a water wheel by a variety of ways. There's the classic undershot wheel, where water strikes the bottom blades of the wheel, such as that utilised to harness a flowing stream. Undershot wheels are cheap to build, but dependent on a constant flow rate, and deriving their energy entirely from the torque provided by the stream don't provide much power. Then there's the overshot wheel, where water falls on the wheel from above, utilising gravity to give extra force. We've also got breast shot, where water is poured right on the front of the wheel, and back shot, where it's poured just in front of the top of the wheel. One man whose name will forever be associated with water is, of course, the great Greek scientist Archimedes. In the 3rd century BC, he invented the Archimedes screw, which is a basic pump. It can best be described as a screw inside a cylinder, which draws water through the cylinder when the screw is turned. The word engine in the ancient world is also associated with siege engines, the battering ram, the catapult, siege towers and the giant mechanical artillery of ancient armies. However, it wasn't until the advent of steam that engines became independent of outside sources of energy. Stay tuned. In the weeks to come, we're going to have a good look at the steam revolution. Well, they gave him his orders at Nuno, Virginia. Said, Steve, you're way behind time. This is not 38, this is old 97. Put her in the dispenser on time. Then he turned around and said to his black green department, Shovel on a little more coal And when we cross that white oak mountain Watch your 97 roll Washington Station, this is how it read. Oh, that brave engineer that run old 97 is lying in old Danville dead. Cause he was going down a grade, making 90 miles an hour. The whistle broke into a stream. He was found in the wreck with his hand on the throttle. Called it to death by the steam. One more time. Take a warning from this 
That was Lachlan Watmore with the first in our series on the history of engines. 50% of Australians are using complementary and alternative medicines. Pat Ruby talked to Nathan Jacobs, founding president of Sydney University's Holistic Society, about alternative medicines and the next generation of medical students. Holistic SOC was set up a couple of years ago. I helped set it up. Medical students have always had an interest in complementary therapies. But until I came along, there wasn't any formal group for students who are interested in complementary therapies to learn about them and to um, display their talents if they had some previous training in complementary therapies. So the great thing about uh, the University of Sydney medical program is that it's a graduate program and a lot of the students have a degree already and some of them already have training in complementary medicine. So, for example, in my year we have a number of students who studied Chinese medicine and in other years we have students who've studied yoga or massage or aromatherapy or a range of complementary therapies and now they're studying medicine as well. How are the medicines actually taught in the medical program? Due to the efforts of Holistic SOC, there's been a little bit of complementary medicine that's now taught in the medical curriculum. It's only a small amount, so there's a couple of lectures on the pharmacology of complementary medicines, that is, how they work at a chemical level. Um, there's also uh, some teaching uh, about some of the potential dangers of complementary medicines. For example, if you're taking uh, a Western medicine, a normal drug given to you by a doctor, then the complementary medicine that you're taking might affect that um, medicine that your doctor's given you. So it's really important to tell your doctor when you've um, when you're taking a complementary therapy. It's important for them to know. So I suppose an example of this might be something like St John's wort, which has got some good properties in terms of relieving anxiety and treating depression, but at the same time it can have negative uh, consequences if you're already on prescribed antidepressants. St John's wort, although it's a herbal remedy, it works in a very similar way to SSRI antidepressants. St John's wort is a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, um, just like SSRIs, but rather than uh, inhibiting the uptake of one serotonin receptor or a small number, it um, inhibits the reuptake of serotonin in a large number of serotonin receptors. So it's important to um, not take both St John's wort and uh, SSRIs, and St John's wort interacts with warfarin and, in fact, many other um, medications, at least... 20 or 30 other medications and the danger is that if you take St John's wort with another medication then it'll either lower the amount of that medication in your blood and you won't be getting enough of it or it'll raise the amount of that medication in your blood and you'll get a uh, toxic overdose. For some of the more popular complementary medicines is there a bit more science known about how these medicines work? There is a bit of science known about some of them. I, I can tell you, for example, that St. John's wort works by preventing serotonin reuptake. Um, but for a number of therapies, we don't know quite how they work. Um, exercise, for example, we know is very effective in helping build bone mass um, 
in and making your bones stronger. It's very helpful in relieving moderate to mild depression, um, nearly as effective as conventional antidepressants. It's very helpful for con- preventing um, people falling and breaking their bones. And it's very helpful in preventing heart disease and diabetes and a number of other conditions. And there's a lot of theories about how it might work. Um, But at the end of the day, the important thing is that we definitely know that it does work. And um, to be honest, there's a lot of things in Western medicine that we don't understand either. But the important thing when evaluating a therapy is to to know for sure that it does work because there's been good quality research to show that it's not just a placebo, but it really does work. So in, um, in analysing complementary medicines, it's important to have a strong evidence base. Um, Absolutely. And it's a real pity that we're just starting now to do the quality research because there's not the same financial benefit for the people doing the research as there is for doing a patented medicine. So that's um, meant that research into a lot of these areas has been relatively slow, but it's rather encouraging that last year the uh, federal government announced the establishment of an Institute of Complementary Medicine Research at the University of Western Sydney, and there's going to be uh, quite extensive funding for that to look at the effectiveness of complementary therapies. Are there any other um, ways in which the topic of complementary medicine and the education in complementary medicine is brought across to students and just generally medical practitioners? That's quite a broad question. I guess in terms of medical practitioners, there's the um, AIMA, the Australasian Integrative Medicine Association, and that's a federal body for medical practitioners and um, any anyone else who's in the health arena to come along and learn about integrative medicine. And what's meant by that is the integration of Western medicine with complementary therapies. And they have actually got a very exciting annual conference coming up in September and that's going to be held at Bondi Beach this year and Holistic Stock is going to be presenting a poster there um, as it has done in previous years. Another way that people are finding out about it is through the activities of student societies like Holistic Stock and there are a number of other students at other universities who are also working informally and holding um, sessions and and seminars at their universities. They've been inspired by the success of Holistic Sock and they want to do the same things at their universities. Earlier this month, the federal government indicated that there may be tougher regulations on labelling for some complementary medicines in order to protect consumers. Some of the medicines that were indicated were used for arthritis where there was not a strong evidence base behind them. Um, and there is also, amongst some healthcare professionals, a suspicion that some complementary medicines um, are being used to try and exploit the public to get money out of them. Do you think that it does tarnish the um, the reputation of some of the alternative therapies? I think that complementary medicines are definitely a mixed bag. There's some therapies that have been used for thousands of years, some traditional therapies, which seem more credible and more evidence-based. The University of Sydney has a Masters in Herbal Medicine program and uh, a Herbal Medicines unit, which is doing research into the chemical components within 
a lot of herbal remedies to try to work out which ones work and how they work at a chemical level. So I have a lot more um, faith in traditional remedies that have been used for a long time. But I do think it's important that the labelling becomes a lot more stringent because when you're buying a herbal remedy, the only thing that's guaranteed is that it's safe and that the quality of the product is reasonably pure. But there's no guarantees for 99% of herbal remedies that they're actually effective, that they actually do what they're going to say that they do. And we really need a lot more research that proves that they actually are effective. One of the problems with complementary therapies is that you're dealing with plant extracts and there can be enormous variability in terms of which subspecies of the plant is used, um, where the plant is grown, the kind of soil uh, that the plant is grown in and the, the particular part of the plant that's used, whether it's the flower or the leaf or the root, because you're not getting... Uh, a measure of the active ingredient often. You're just getting a measure of how much of that plant is in the tablet. So a lot more research needs to be done to identify which parts of the plant and specifically which chemicals in the plant are responsible for um, the, the effectiveness of it. And I think it's really important that the public uh, is not misled by believing that uh, a remedy can do something that it, it cannot do. And uh, as consumers, we need to be very cautious that if we are taking something, that we don't forego a proven medical treatment to try something that might work but might not work because in many instances, if we delay treatment, then it's much harder to treat that condition after the delay uh, rather than treating the condition with a proven therapy earlier on. As uh, both a medical student and president of Holistic SOC, how do you see the, the best way in the future would be for the medical profession and complementary and alternative medicines to become integrated? I think that um, holistic medicine or integrative medicine is really about two things. It's firstly about considering the person as a whole and not just focusing on the physical illness, but looking at other aspects like their social needs, their emotional needs. The fact that the person is a human being with certain limitations and to think about other aspects of the therapy, like how it's going to affect their sense of self, how it's going to fit in with their lifestyle. So I think that's one of the things we need to consider in holistic medicine. Another thing about the holistic approach is it's not just a philosophy, but a particular bunch of treatments. And I don't think we should limit ourselves just to thinking about herbal medicines, but I think we should be thinking about other lifestyle factors as well. Things like stopping smoking, drinking in moderation, eating a healthy and balanced diet, doing regular exercise and managing our stress levels. Now, we learn about all of these things in passing in Western medicine, but I really wish that they were given more emphasis because I think you can't merely mention to a person that they need to exercise more or stop drinking or stop smoking. To really get them to do that, you have to spend time listening to them, understanding why they do these things and understanding how 
the these changes in their lifestyle can benefit them. It, it takes quite a long time to really establish a rapport with someone and convince them to make difficult lifestyle changes. Thanks, Pat. You're listening to Diffusion on 2SER FM, broadcast coast to coast on the Community Radio Network. We the clouds are black. They say it's gonna fall, but I haven't been keeping track. So now we're all from this edition of Diffusion, the International Science Show. If you've got any feedback for this show, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Contributing to this program were Ian Wolfe, Patrick Ruby, Lachlan Watmore, Adrian Saunders, and yours truly, Vicky Saunders. Not forgetting the late, great Peter Finch and Johnny Cash. Diffusion was produced and panelled by Lachlan here in the studios of 2SER in Sydney and is broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. You can also pick up our podcast at www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. I'm Vicky Saunders. Join us next week for more science stuff. To tell me you're not hanging around It's been a long time